Alexa Philippou, in recent weeks, many of us are tracking the clash of the WNBA super teams. But in parallel to that, there was another vibrant scene playing out in this sport. Tell us what went down. So Sunday, October 15th was a pretty huge deal in women's basketball. Now, I was at Barclays Center in Brooklyn for game three of the WMA finals between the Aces and the Liberty. Game three in New York is underway. The Aces, a 2-0 series lead in these best of five finals. But if you looked west, and Iowa City, there's something pretty special going down. This had been planned for a while for Iowa. They're about to do something here that has never been done in the sport of women's basketball. It was a little bit windy and chilly, but that did not matter. This stadium holds 69,250 fans, and we can see in our section especially around the north end zone, it is filling up with people. 55,646 fans turned out to an outdoor exhibition game at Iowa's football stadium to watch the Iowa women's basketball team, led by National Player of the Year from last year, Caitlin Clark, take on DePaul. Caitlin Clark unloads from the end zone. And that was actually almost double the previous record of attendance for a women's basketball game. And so you had in New York, a bunch of excitement over the finals. There was Joan Jett, backcourt side. Jason Sudeikis is there. Aubrey Plaza, all these celebrities. Jason Sudeikis always in his seafoam green hoodie. We saw him in game two out of Vegas. Swiss Beats here, sitting courtside, taking in the action. And then in Iowa, you had all these people watching Caitlin Clark. There it is, an assist for Clark and a triple-double outside. It's been said before, but what can't Caitlin Clark do? And so you had so much anticipation in that moment, both in how the college basketball scene is going to unfold. But then also you had this incredible scene at Barclays Center with celebrities and a sellout crowd of 17,143, which was the largest gate attendance for a WMA Finals game in league history. Ionescu, you bet. Largest lead of the series for New York. And even though the Liberty did not end up winning the WMA championship, you can't say enough about how much this final series and their season in all just really revitalized the fan base. So it was pretty special that no matter where you were on an NFL Sunday, the place to be that day was a women's basketball game. In the aftermath of an epic 2023 NCAA final, it felt like women's basketball was having a moment. And as you just heard, any doubt of how long that moment would last was put to rest in the last couple of weeks when attendance records were set in the WNBA Finals and at a chilly outdoor scrimmage in Iowa. But where is this sport headed? And is all this attention on women's hoops still just a bubble or has it reached a full-blown movement? So today, Alexa Philippou helps us paint the big picture of where the women's game is right now and most importantly, where it's going. I'm David Dennis Jr. It's Thursday, October 26th. This is ESPN Daily.
The NFL schedule drops this week, kiddos, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Alexa, it feels like we're at an inflection point for women's basketball. Game feels bigger and better than it's ever been. I want to talk to you about why that is. The WNBA Finals just saw two of its biggest teams meet. What does it mean that the first finals in this quote-unquote super team era was between two of the most super of teams? So what was so funny about this battle of the super teams is everyone was expecting, you know, these down-to-the-wire, really intense finishes for the entire series. And we actually only got that one game, but it was game four, which was the championship clincher for Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And it was on the Liberty's home floor. So that kind of added extra intrigue to it that they were able to pull it off there. Six seconds left. Stewart with five. Draws the double. Lady to the corner. But the quality of play, both individually and then also collectively, I still think was on full display. So yes, while the Liberty didn't win, we saw the potential of what they could be, especially once they have more experience under their belts. But then we have to talk about the Aces because they had an argument, I think you could say, at the end of the regular season for being one of the best teams in league history. And they really solidified that. They are one of three teams to repeat ever. And the last team that did that was two decades ago. So the fact that they're able to do that too without Chelsea Gray, without Candace Parker, without Kia Stokes was, it was a remarkable scene. And then Asia Wilson, what more can you say about her? She deserved every single bit of that finals MVP. And she really has cemented herself, I think really even dating back to last year as arguably the face of the game in this sport. Yeah, I agree. The more we get to see Asia Wilson, the better. I'd love to see Asia Wilson get her own signature shoe at some point. But as far as the W, they're expanding for the first time since 2008. This month, the league announced it is adding its 13th franchise. It was awarded to the Bay Area and will be owned and operated by the Golden State Warriors. In addition, there are also rumors of an expansion team coming to Portland. How does this expansion speak to what investors are seeing in the potential for this league? What I thought was interesting about the Warriors announcement was that they said they were really interested in making this happen. It was just a matter of the right time. And they identified that as now. They see the same metrics that we do when it comes to viewership, when it comes to attendance and merchandise, all those numbers headed in the right direction. You also can add sponsorship interest into that. And from the league side, you're also seeing more and more people cry out that there needs to be more roster spots. There need to be more roster spots. And so this is how the league saw one way to rectify that issue as opposed to expanding the actual roster size. And it's also, it's just been 15 years since this league has expanded. And I do think that that's kind of a long time in the gist of sports, especially when you see in women's sports, other leagues that seem to be expanding and adding franchises left and right. But the WNBA is, I, I get the sense that they were just really afraid to repeat the mistakes of the past. And they don't want a franchise to be added that's going to fold mm -hmm. into, they felt kind of those scars of, of their past, more or less. And... 
it is not coincidental in my mind that they did this now because adding an extra market and being able to add a franchise is only going to boost the league's value ahead of their next media rights deal negotiations, which are coming up uh, going into 2025. So about half the WNBA's teams are still partially owned and operated by NBA counterparts. How does this next expansion team being affiliated with NBA factor into discussions of moving away from NBA involvement? It's interesting because I think you can really see when you heard about the Warriors' vision for this team, why it was so appealing to have them be the group that started this 13th franchise. They're going to be able to put the resources into it. The Warriors even have the top valuation for any NBA franchise. So that's not just any NBA team that's doing this. It's the Golden State Warriors. Mm. So they have the resources, they have the facilities. And by that, we're talking about the W team's going to be playing in the Chase Center. They're going to be practicing in the Warriors' old practice facility in Oakland. And they also just have the organizational infrastructure to make this work. When I talked with Warriors personnel, they were saying that they want to infuse the Warriors' DNA into this WMA team and, and basically translate some of that business success that they were able to have on the NBA side into the WNBA side. I guess you could say the counterpart to all this is there's something to be said about standing alone and not having um, to rely on NBA resources or, or ownership or whatnot. And I do think the WNBA wanted to bring in a new ownership group that showed it could provide the resources and the investment that is now basically come to be expected in this league. And I think what that actually looks like is the barrier for entry for starting a new team and for being involved from an ownership perspective is much higher than it was maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, especially once we see teams like the Las Vegas Aces have their own practice facility and Seattle's now creating one and, oh, what's New York going to do? And it means a lot to have a WNBA team and to actually put the research into that. Well, yeah, so you're talking about these um, improved practice facilities and improved play conditions overall for WNBA players. And the players have the option to opt out of the current CBA in 2025. What do we know about what they're hoping to accomplish in that CBA and what other, what other issues they'd like to see addressed or improve? So we actually surveyed players on this. I talked with, uh, with my colleague, Michael Vopel, about a quarter of the league. And the issues that came up, we actually framed it more so just generally, what are the issues the league's facing, whether or not that's something the CBA negotiations will deal with or not. The first one, to no one's surprise, came across as the travel issue, the chartering issue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was about... Over 50% of the people we talked to brought that up first. That's going to probably come down to CBA negotiations because even though maybe there's a way that they could technically kind of figure things out beforehand, the way that Kathy Engelbert, the WMA commissioner, has discussed this issue is that the league right now cannot afford league-wide charting 100% of the time. Mm. And there's just this assumption that the way that this can be rectified is with the influx of money that's going to theoretically be coming in with this new media rights deal. And that will tip the scales in the direction of, of making chartering happen. So that's something that's going to be huge, I think, for CBA negotiations. Then we're also still talking about salaries and salary structure. Salaries were what the players prioritized the last round of CBA negotiations. Right now, the Supermax is about $235,000, but some players would like that to be higher. And so they're going to have to figure out ways to, to figure out, is that feasible or what else would they have to give up to, to achieve that? We're also talking about prioritization too, and that's a huge factor in everything when we're talking about salaries. A lot of players, especially international players or players that had really robust careers playing overseas, really care about prioritization. 
which is basically the way that the league is trying to get all of its players to not miss either training camp or actual regular season games because of overseas commitments. That is going to come to a head this upcoming season because for the first time, if you're not at your market by the start of training camp or May 1st, I think the deals, whichever is later, then you're going to be suspended for the season. Mm -hmm. So again, we're going to really see this coming to a head in 2024. And then there's this idea of competitive advantage. I think a lot of players are, are saying what really should be allowed as a competitive advantage. If you have an owner that can build a brand new practice facility with all this nice recovery and rehab equipment or all those facilities in its sense, then I think a lot of players would say that's a competitive advantage. And the biggest issue though is that players and negotiations are going to have to figure out what is most important to them and the owners and the league, they're going to have their own say too. So how they prioritize moving forward will be really interesting to see. Yes, I want to go back to this prioritization thing because this obviously became a huge, huge story uh, with the situation with Brittany Griner and her experience in captivity in Russia and her eventual you know, return home. We know that Brittany Griner was in Russia playing overseas, which is common for WNBA players. But, you know, obviously she wasn't didn't have to go there for monetary reasons. This doesn't happen. Right. So how much does Griner's experience influence what the players are seeking in the new CBA? The overseas question is so interesting because I think you just get a wide variety of experiences. I think more and more players probably do want to stay home. Mm -hmm. And there are these now league marketing deals you can do. They're not totally, totally widespread, but you can have a marketing deal with the league where you're able to stay home and do these certain appearances and whatnot. And that's one way to supplement your income in the offseason. So yes, there is a an increasing desire to not have to go overseas. Overseas life is tough too, mm. regardless, even before what happened with Brittany. But you also talk to players who love playing overseas. Mm. It's a great opportunity for either younger players or kind of the like mid-level veteran players to, to really get an even bigger role to even work on their game. Someone like Brianna Stewart, she likes playing overseas. She's one of the best players, has been one of the best players in the world for, for years. And she likes playing overseas. So it's I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. And I, I do think one thing that players want ultimately is the option and choice. They would like the choice to do that if they want. And they want to be able to supplement their incomes because right now uh, they're leaving money on the table if they don't do something in the offseason. So there were a few coaching announcements made in recent weeks in the W. Teresa Weatherspoon was hired to coach the Sky. So now half of the coaches in the league are former players. But one announcement that was called out on social media was the hiring of Nate Tibbetts by the Mercury. While Tibbetts has 18 years of professional coaching experience, 12 of those in the NBA, he's never coached a women's team. These are two very different hires. So I want to ask you, what exactly makes a good WNBA coach? I think, obviously, at the baseline, you want someone who is a great X's and O's mind. And those are both qualities, I think, Becky Hammond and Sandy Brondello, who are the coaches of the Aces and the Liberty in the finals. Um, obviously, they both have. When we're talking about this whole Tibbetts and Weatherspoon thing, it's not really a necessity, but I do see more and more players talking about the importance of having a coach that was a former player in the league or someone that can just relate to them on that level. So I think the big question that came out of this whole Tibbetts and Weatherspoon news is, 
how much you have to have familiarity with the league to succeed in it. In one way, you could say Becky Hammond, she had never coached in the WNBA before she got the Aces job, but mm-hmm. obviously she was one of the league's most prolific, legendary players. Weatherspoon has a little bit of that mold too, although she did have head coaching uh, experience at the college level. And then the other two men, aside from Nate Tibbetts, who are head coaches in the WNBA, one is Eric Tebow, who is a longtime assistant associate head coach for the Mystics. And then you also have Kurt Miller, who was a, a really successful coach in the women's college basketball game. So I think where this outcry came around Tibbetts is that he had no real experience mm. around the women's game, aside from his father, Fred Tibbetts, was a, a legendary coach in South Dakota at the high school and college level. So he kind of by proximity was around the women's game. But yeah, and there's also people that took issue with him saying that he's going to have to lean on the Mercury players to learn about the league. But at the end of the day, he'll have the opportunity to either prove the doubters right or prove them wrong. And um, you can see, I think, why there was a lot of frustration around that hire, but he's not going to have the opportunity to try and get the Mercury in the right direction. Uh, you mentioned Becky Hammond, and she's just won her second WNBA championship as a head coach with the Las Vegas Aces. She returned to the W after a stint as an NBA assistant, and James Wade, who coached the Sky to a championship in 2021, just left for a job with the Toronto Raptors. Is there a sentiment that coaching in the WNBA is considered a stepping stone for something greater? I think it was more so in the league's past. If mm-hmm. you actually looked at the league's former coaches, well, we can take 2004 as an example, Five of the league's 13 coaches were actually former NBA players. And actually, this is now the first season that a NBA player has not been a WBA head coach, which I thought was really interesting to look at. Shout out to Kevin Pelton for coming up with that stat. <laughs> um, the Wade situation was interesting. I think a lot of the resentment around him leaving had to do with the way he went out and the fact that kind of the way that he left that franchise. Again, a whole other kind of can of worms. I don't know how many people blamed him for leaving for the NBA and that alone. I think it more so had to do with like the state of the franchise. But I do think there is an interesting question here because what happens if Becky Hammond gets an NBA head coaching job in three years and leaves? Like, would people hold that against her? Now, I don't think they would because she's given a lot to the WNBA, both as a player and now as a two-time championship winning coach but that's maybe where a lot of people saw the issues with the Tibbetts hiring came into into play because they were maybe questioning his commitment to the league if he has no prior experience in women's basketball and you know to when he was kind of asked about his commitment he said he's all in and he's 100 percent and now I guess he has a chance to prove that coming up how the NCAA plans to capitalize on last year's historic season. Delicious meat, nutritious. In the snack that packs of real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot, taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is 
Not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you people wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first one or for your fashionista mom who likes to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate with them both. You can shop by price anywhere from $25 and under to, say, $100 and below. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Or even pre-wrapped gifts for grandma. Find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats Headphones, Polaroid Cameras, and Samsung Smart TVs. So, what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th and it'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. Alexa, in terms of college basketball, women's hoops has grown into must-watch TV, right? Last year's women's NCAA tournament saw the rise of stars Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese and more viewers than ever before. And as we prepare for a new college basketball season, we're already seeing a record-breaking year. We talked at the top of the show uh, about Caitlin Clark's Iowa that just set the women's basketball attendance record in the outdoor exhibition game a couple weeks ago. So what's behind the recent exponential growth in women's college basketball? I think in a lot of ways, it comes down to parity. And we probably could do a whole separate episode about the whole, like, was UConn's dominance good for the game or bad for the game? But regardless, you're having more intrigue. Here's Clark. She fires. There's new programs that are um, not just relevant, but are powerhouses, contenders, winning championships. So that brings in new fan bases. You also have some star power that really is exciting and garnering interest about what those players are going to do when they eventually even go to the pros. Reese looking, size it up, Kaiser underneath with the left hand. There's this obviously a broader movement, I think, you know, for women's sports, women's equality, all of that, that this is part of. We have more games on primetime, more games on ABC, that leads to more eyeballs. And then more recently, we have this whole thing with NIL. And so while that's more of an off-court thing, it does mean that these players have bigger platforms now, more than ever, and there's more money going into the women's game. Yeah, I want to uh, stick with Angel Reese. Uh, podcast listeners can't see me. I'm pointing at my my ring finger now uh, in honor of her. She just signed the first NIL deal under Reebok uh, with Shaq and AI sort of leading the charge there. But what's the NIL landscape look like for women's players right now? We had the Angel deal with Reebok. That was just announced. Paige Becker signed with Nike. Caitlin Clark signed with State Farm. So it's all and all keeps coming with the women's game. I think a lot of that we see too. Everyone saw those numbers from the national championship game with, what was it, 9.9 million viewers. And so I think these companies are now more than happy to ride the wave of women's basketball, women's college basketball athletes. 
One of the things that I thought was really interesting to see this offseason is how NIL seemed to affect transfer decisions. We saw LSU in particular embrace this whole NIL era as what they, I think, call themselves as NIL-SU. Uh-huh. And so <laughs> that obviously is still at play. But then we also saw a lot of players really just head. I think if you did this like map of like where all the players transferred to, you'd see a lot of people going south. You'd see a lot of people going to SEC schools. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. But yeah, lots of dispersion of talent kind of in those more Southern school states. So it'll be really interesting to see. But I think now, especially we're like two years out from NIL becoming a thing. So we're starting to see these trends. And and now that people have figured out the rules or the loopholes, people are starting to figure out how this all is going to look for the long run. So you're talking about NIL and how it impacts transfers. But I'm interested in what is happening with players going from college to the WNBA. Is the league concerned that current NIL deals are as lucrative and maybe even more so than going pro? One thing that's important to note is that the option to either stay in school or go pro is not going to be really a thing after, I think it's the class of the 2020 to 2021 freshman class. Once they're done with school, they're the last ones that had that freebie COVID year. And so there's not going to be this dilemma of like, are these kids going out? Are they going to stay in school and use their fifth year? And so then it means, what does this actually look like for a typical college athlete with four years of eligibility, I guess you could say. And there's been a lot made about the optics of college kids making more than WNBA players, but I think it's way more complicated and maybe even nuanced than that because we don't actually know how much money they're making. There's all this stuff about valuations, which doesn't actually mean money in the bank account, if you will. And so there's also a lot of lack of transparency of what these college players are actually making. But what I thought was interesting was that WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engler has said She actually thinks NIL is going to be helpful in the long run for the WNBA. And I do think there's a point to that because you have these college players that are able to start building their brands now. They're able to start building interest in who they are as players, get their fan bases expanding, get actual sponsorships. And some of those sponsorships and obviously the fans, that is going to be able to carry over once they hit the pros. And we'll have to see. I think a lot of that, again, we're still waiting to see what this ultimately looks like with the NIL era. But... A lot of those deals, I think, could easily translate to the pros and certainly the the Instagram followers or the fan bases or that kind of interest um, from that standpoint. As we get to the end here, while the feeling is that the future is bright for the sport, we're still not far removed from the 2021 NCAA tournament when photos from the women's bubble and their paltry weight room went viral that showed the vast inequity of the resources the NCAA provided. So as we stand here in 2023, where is the women's game in terms of achieving equality? When I was thinking about this question, it kind of dawned on me. We talk about how there's so much momentum in the women's game, but also it was only two years ago, like you said, that we were talking about all the inequities and the the weight room situation and how horrible the experience was for those athletes. I would say horrible, but it wasn't the same. The athletes experience and the uh, the women's basketball bubble um, that COVID year and then in compared to the men's. And so when we think about that, we think about also all the issues that were pointed out in the Kaplan report, which was released in August 2021. And that really pointed to the long list of kind of issues when it comes to gender inequity when it, in the NCAAs, both like from an organizational standpoint and just how they, they run things and what they incentivize others to value. The way things are set up is that 
schools and leagues are incentivized to invest more in their men's basketball programs because the men's basketball programs will be rewarded for getting into the NCAA tournament or performing well in the NCAA tournament, but that's not happening at all in women's basketball. And I think the biggest question that could have to deal with both actually the WNBA side and the college side is what's going to happen when the media rights go up for bid. And so it's really complicated because you have right now the way it's set up on the college game is that the Women's Basketball Championship is lumped in with all these other sports. And so there's an argument that you should separate the Women's College Basketball Tournament from the other sports that you can actually bid on its full value. But we are going to see this all come to a head in 2024. That's when everything is going to go down with the women's side. And then 2025 is when the media rights for the WNBA are going to come into play. And of course, this has to do with our parent company. So um, kind of full transparency there. But uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what the marketplace looks like also now that we've seen so much increased interest for both the WNBA and for the college game, if there's going to be more players uh, and, and what kind of that's going to do to build up what the kind of competitive bid process looks like. But for promising as the last few years have been for women's basketball, I think you could argue that the most critical are going to be in the next two. Thanks so much, Alexa. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. I'm David Dennis Jr. This has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow.